part two of part eighth of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by George de Maurier, part eighth, part two. One day Mrs. Bagor told Trilby that her brother-in-law, Mr. Thomas Bagor, would much like to come and talk to her. Was that the gentleman who came with you to the studio in Paris? Yes. Why, he's a clergyman, isn't he? What does he want to come and talk to me about? Ah, my dear child, said Mrs. Bagor, her eyes filling. Trilby was thoughtful for a while, and then said, I'm going to die, I suppose. Oh, yes, oh, yes, there's no mistake about that. Dear Trilby, we are all in the hands of an almighty, merciful God and the tears rolled down Mrs. Buggle's cheeks. After a long pause, during which she gazed out of the window, Trilby said, in an abstracted kind of way, as though she were talking to herself, Après tout, c'est pas déjà si raide de claquer. J'en ai tant vu, qui ont passé par là, au but du fossé la culbute, ma foi. What are you saying to yourself in French, Trilby? Your French is so difficult to understand. Oh, I beg your pardon. I was thinking it's not so difficult to die, after all. I've seen such lots of people do it. I've nursed them, you know, Papa and Mama and Jono and Angèle Boisse's mother-in-law and a poor casseur de pierre, Colin Maigret, who lived in the Impasse des Taupes Saint-Germain. He'd been run over by an omnibus in the Rue Vaugirard and had to have both his legs cut off just above the knee. They, none of them, seemed to mind dying a bit. They weren't a bit afraid. I'm not. Poor people don't think much of death. Rich people shouldn't either. They should be taught when they're quite young to laugh at it and despise it, like the Chinese. The Chinese die of laughing just as their heads are being cut off and cheat the executioner. It's all in the day's work, and we're all in the same boat. So who's afraid? Dying is not all, my poor child. Are you prepared to meet your maker face to face? Have you ever thought about God and the possible wrath to come if you should die unrepentant? Oh, but I shan't. I've been repenting all my life. Besides, there'll be no wrath for any of us, not even the worst. Il y aura amnistie générale. Papa told me so. And he'd been a clergyman, like Mr. Thomas Bagot. I often think about God. I'm very fond of him. One must have something perfect to look up to and be fond of even if it's only an idea, even if it's too good to be true. Though some people don't even believe he exists. Le Père Martin didn't. But, of course, he was only a chiffonnier and doesn't count. One day, though, Durian, the sculptor, who's very clever, and a very good fellow indeed, said, Vois-tu, Trilby? I'm very much afraid he doesn't really exist, le bon Dieu. Most unfortunately for me, for I adore him. I never do a piece of work without thinking how nice it would be if I could only please him with it. And I've often thought myself how heavenly it must be to be able to paint or sculpt or make music or write beautiful poetry for that very reason. Why, once on a very hot afternoon we were sitting, a lot of us, in the courtyard outside La Mère Martin's shop, drinking coffee with an old invalide called Bastide Landormy one of the vieilles gardes, 
who'd only got one leg and one arm and one eye, and everybody was very fond of him. Well, a model called Mimi la Salope came out of the Mont de Piété opposite, and Père Martin called out to her to come and sit down, and gave her a cup of coffee, and asked her to sing. She sang a song of Béranger's about Napoleon the Great, in which it says, Parlez-nous de lui, grand-mère, grand-mère, parlez-nous de lui. I suppose she sang it very well, for it made old Bastide Landormy cry. And when Père Martin blagued him about it, he said, C'est égal, voyez-vous, to sing like that is to pray. And then I thought how lovely it would be if I could only sing like Mimi La Salope, and I've thought so ever since, just to pray. What, Trilby? If you could only sing like... Oh, but never mind, I forgot. Tell me, Trilby, do you ever pray to him as other people pray? Pray to him? Well, no, not often. Not in words and on my knees and with my hands together, you know. Thinking's praying, very often. Don't you think so? And so's being sorry and ashamed when one's done a mean thing. And glad when one's resisted a temptation. And grateful when it's a fine day and one's enjoying oneself without hurting anyone else. What is it but praying when you try and bear up after losing all you cared to live for? And very good praying, too. There can be prayers without words just as well as songs, I suppose. And Svengali used to say that songs without words are the best. And then it seems mean to be always asking for things. Besides, you don't get them any the faster that way, and that shows. La Mère Martin used to be always praying, and Père Martin said always to laugh at her, yet he always seemed to get the things he wanted oftenest. I prayed once, very hard indeed. I prayed for Jeannot not to die. Well, but how do you repent, Trilby, if you do not humble yourself and pray for forgiveness on your knees? Oh, well, I don't exactly know. Look here, Mrs. Bagor. I'll tell you the lowest and meanest thing I ever did. Mrs. Bagor felt a little nervous. I'd promised to take Jeannot on Palm Sunday to Saint-Philippe-du-Roule to hear l'abbé Bergamo. But Durien, that's the sculptor, you know, asked me to go with him to Saint-Germain, where there was a fair or something, and with Mathieu, who was a student in law, and a certain Victorine Letelier, who who was Mathieu's mistress, in fact, a lace-mender in the Rue Sainte-Marie-Dorne-la-Pocharde. And so I went on Sunday morning to tell Jeannot that I couldn't take him. He cried so dreadfully that I thought I'd give up the others and take him to Saint-Philippe as I'd promised. But then Durien and Mathieu and Victorine drove up and waited outside, and so I didn't take him and went with them, and I didn't enjoy anything at all. I was miserable. They were in an open carriage with two horses. It was Mathieu Street, and Jeannot might have ridden on the box by the coachman without being in anybody's way. But I was afraid they didn't want him, as they didn't say anything. And so I didn't dare ask, and Jeannot saw us drive away, and I couldn't look back. And the worst of it is that when we were halfway to Saint-Germain, Durien said, What a pity you didn't bring Jeannot! And they were all sorry I hadn't. It was six or seven years ago, and I really believe I thought of it every day, and sometimes in the middle of the night. Ah, and when Jeannot was dying, and when he was dead, the remembrance of that Palm Sunday. 
And if that's not repenting, I don't know what is. Oh, Trilby, what nonsense! That's nothing, good heavens, putting off a small child. I'm thinking of far worse things. When you were in that quartier latin, you know, sitting to painters and sculptors, surely so attractive as you are. Oh, yes. I know what you mean. It was horrid, and I was frightfully ashamed of myself. And it wasn't amusing a bit. Nothing was, till I met your son and Taffy and dear Sandy McAllister. But then it wasn't deceiving or disappointing anybody or hurting their feelings. It was only hurting myself. Besides, all that sort of thing in women is punished severely enough down here, God knows. Unless one's a Russian empress, like Catherine the Great, or a grande dame, like lots of them, or a great genius like Madame Rachel or Georges Sand. Why, if it hadn't been for that and sitting for the figure, I should have felt myself good enough to marry your son, although I was only a blanchisseuse de fin. You've said so yourself. And I should have made him a good wife. Of that I feel sure. He wanted to live all his life at Barbizon, and paint, you know, and didn't care for society in the least. Anyhow, I should have been equal to such a life as that. Lots of their wives are blanchisseuses over there, or people of that sort, and they get on very well indeed, and nobody travels about it. So I think I've been pretty well punished, richly as I've deserved to. Trilby, have you ever been confirmed? I forget. I fancy not. Oh dear, oh dear. And do you know about our blessed Saviour, and the Atonement, and the Incarnation, and the Resurrection? Oh, yes, I used to, at least. I used to have to learn the Catechism on Sundays. Mamma made me. Whatever her faults and mistakes were, poor Mamma was always very particular about that. It all seemed very complicated. But Papa told me not to bother too much about it, but to be good. He said that God would make it all right for us somehow in the end, all of us. And that seems sensible, doesn't it? He told me to be good, and not to mind what priests and clergymen tell us. He'd been a clergyman himself, and he knew all about it, he said. I haven't been very good. There's not much doubt about that, I'm afraid. But God knows I've repented often enough, and sore enough. I do now. But I'm rather glad to die, I think. And not a bit afraid, not a scrap. I believe in poor Papa though he was so unfortunate. He was the cleverest man I ever knew, and the best, except Taffy and the Laird, and your dear son. There'll be no hell for any of us, he told me so, except what we make for ourselves and each other down here, and that's bad enough for anything. He told me that he was responsible for me. He often said so, and that Mamma was too, and his parents for him, and his grandfathers and grandmothers for them, and so on up to Noah, and ever so far beyond, and God for us all. He told me always to think of other people before myself, as Taffy does, and your son, and never to tell lies or be afraid, and keep away from drink, and I should be all right. But I've sometimes been all wrong, all the same, and it wasn't Papa's fault. But poor Mamma's and mine... And I've known it and been miserable at the time and after. And I'm sure to be forgiven, perfectly certain, and so will everybody else, even the wickedest that ever lived. Why, just give them sense enough in the next world to understand all their wickedness in this, and that'll punish them enough, 
for anything, I think. That's simple enough, isn't it? Besides, there may be no next world. That's on the cards too, you know, and that will be simpler still. Not all the clergymen in all the world, not even the Pope of Rome, will ever make me doubt Papa, or believe in any punishment, after what we've all got to go through here. Ce sera trop bête. So that if you don't want me to very much, and he won't think it unkind, I'd rather not talk to Mr. Thomas Bagot about it. I'd rather talk to Taffy, if I must. He's very clever, Taffy, though he doesn't often say such clever things as your son does, or paint nearly so well. And I'm sure he'll think Papa was right. And, as a matter of fact, the good Taffy, in his opinion, on this solemn subject, was found to be at one with the late Reverend Patrick Michael O'Farrell. And so was the laird. And so, to his mother's shocked and pained surprise, was little Billy. And so were Sir Oliver Calthorpe and Sir Jakes, then Mr. Talboys, and Dr. Thorne and Antony and Lorimer and the Greek. And so, in after years, when grief had well pierced and torn and riddled her through and through, and time and age had healed the wounds, and nothing remained but the consciousness of great inward scars of recollection, to remind her how deep and jagged and wide the wounds had once been, did Mrs. Bagor herself. Late on one memorable Saturday afternoon, just as it was getting dusk in Charlotte Street, Trilby, in her pretty blue dressing-gown, lay on the sofa by the fire, her head well propped, her knees drawn up, looking very placid and content. She had spent the early part of the day dictating her will to the conscientious Taffy. It was a simple document, although she was not without many valuable trinkets to leave. Quite a fortune, souvenirs from many men and women she had charmed by her singing, from royalties downward. She had been looking over them with the faithful Martha, to whom she had always thought they belonged. It was explained to her that they were gifts of Spengali's, since she did not remember when and where and by whom they were presented to her, except a few that Spengali had given her himself, with many passionate expressions of his love, which seems to have been deep and constant and sincere, none the less so, perhaps, that she could never return it. She had left the bulk of these to the faithful Martha. But to each of the trois Anglish she had bequeathed a beautiful ring, which was to be worn by their brides, if they ever married, and the brides didn't object. To Mrs. Bagot she left a pearl necklace, to Miss Bagot her gold coronet of stars, and pretty and most costly gifts to each of the three doctors who had attended her and been so assiduous in their care, and who, as she was told, would make no charge for attending on Madame Svengali and studs and scarf-pins to Antony, Lorimer, the Greek, Dodor, and Zuzu, and to Carnegie a little German silver vinaigrette, which had once belonged to Lord Widow, and pretty souvenirs to the Vinars, Angèle Bois, Durian, and others. And she left a magnificent gold watch and chain to Gecko, with the most affectionate letter and a hundred pounds, which was all she had in money of her own. She had taken great interest in discussing with Taffy the particular kind of trinket which would best suit the idiosyncrasy of each particular legatee, and derived great comfort from the business-like and sympathetic conscientiousness with which the good Taffy entered upon all these minutiae. He was so solemn and serious about it, and took such pains. 
she little guessed how his dumb but deeply feeling heart was harrowed. This document had been duly signed and witnessed and entrusted to his care, and Trilby lay tranquil and happy, and with the sense that nothing remained for her but to enjoy the fleeting hour, and make the most of each precious moment as it went by. She was quite without pain of either mind or body, and surrounded by the people she adored, Taffy, the laird, and little Billy, and Mrs. Bagor, and Martha, who sat knitting in a corner, with her black mittens on, and her brass spectacles. She listened to the chat, and joined in it, laughing as usual. Love in her eyes sat playing, as she looked from one to another, for she loved them all beyond expression. Love on her lips was straying and warbling in her breath whenever she spoke, and her weakened voice was still larger, fuller, softer than any other voice in the room, in the world, of another kind from another sphere. A cart drove up, there was a ring at the door, and presently a wooden packing-case was brought into the room. At Trilby's request it was opened, and found to contain a large photograph, framed and glazed, of Svengali, in the military uniform of his own Hungarian band, which he had always worn until he came to Paris and London, where he conducted an ordinary evening dress. And looking straight out of the picture, straight at you, he was standing by his desk with his left hand turning over a leaf of music, and waving his baton with his right. It was a splendid photograph, by a Viennese photographer and a most speaking likeness, and Svengali looked truly fine, all made up of importance and authority, and his big black eyes were full of stern command. Marta trembled as she looked. It was handed to Trilby, who exclaimed in surprise. She had never seen it. She had no photograph of him, and had never possessed one. No message of any kind, no letter of explanation accompanied this unexpected present, which, from the postmarks on the case, seemed to have travelled all over Europe to London, out of some remote province in eastern Russia, out of the mysterious east, the poisonous east, birthplace and home of an ill wind that blows nobody good. Trilby laid it against her legs as on a lectern, and lay gazing at it with close attention for a long time, making a casual remark now and then as, He was very handsome, I think, or that uniform becomes him very well. Why has he got it on, I wonder? The others went on talking, and Mrs. Bagor made coffee. End of Part 2, Part 8 Recording by Stel Jobson, Rome, Italy